Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 10, Prayer to the Gods of Night, the Near Eastern Roots of Astrology. How often do you think about the stars? You'd think about the sun pretty quick if it were to stop shining, because you'd die in about eight minutes. But aside from that, a lot of folks in the modern world, myself included, find it pretty easy to ignore the heavens. The stars aren't really that bright, especially if you live in a city. The planets pretty much look like stars. We're told that they move differently. Planetes means wanderer in Greek, because they sort of wander about in the sky, unlike the background of fixed stars, which seem to be set in their relative positions. But a lot of us never spend too much time checking it out. Nevertheless, we've all had the experience of lying on our backs looking at the night sky and after a while having one of those whoa moments. If you haven't had this experience, go immediately tonight to a quiet field, lie down on your back, and wait. This is important, but important as it is, it's easy to forget about it in the hustle and bustle of the mundane world. Our concerns are mostly here on Earth. Now, Western esotericism has never forgotten about the dance of the heavens. And for someone with an astrological mindset, what happens in the sky is intimately connected to what happens here on Earth. In pretty much every development of the traditions we call Western esoteric, we find a strong preoccupation with the movements, meaning, and power of the celestial bodies. Astral magic and astral medicine. Alchemy, of course, where all the metals are also planets and vice versa, so that the heavens are mapped onto the Earth's very bones. Ideas of macrocosm and microcosm, wherein so often the macrocosmos is specifically the celestial realm of the planets and stars, so that the heavens are mapped onto the human being's very bones. And of course, we have good old astrology. The idea that by finding out about the secret order of the cosmos, we can find out about the secret order of what's happening down here. So the idea of the power of the stars has had an enduring impact on the Western esoteric traditions. Why then, in the era when we are literally exploring the stars, do they seem to be off most people's radar? Think about it. Back in the day, entire metaphysical systems were based around the structure of the heavens. As we shall see in the course of the podcast, many of the religious movements of late antiquity believed that they could literally ascend through the planets and stars, usually as a soul, but sometimes in bodily form too. And that this journey a literal kind of flight towards God, was the ultimate journey, the religious or philosophical exploit par excellence. And if this seems wacky, remember that we have ascent accounts like these, not just for Gnostics and Platonist philosophers, but in the founding documents of Christianity, namely St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in the late antique Jewish mystical documents known as Hechelot literature, and in the widely told story of the Miraj of Islam, the ascent narrative told about the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace. As many scholars have remarked, the cosmic ascent narrative is not a fringe curiosity of post-Hellenistic religious life. It is one of the essential narrative motifs of Western religions up to the present day. Christian listeners will have heard a lot about God in heaven. Well, where's heaven? Up. It's the sky, in fact. Now, our ancestors took this literally, as we shall see later on, once Aristotelian cosmology took hold as the default map of the universe, 
it was very easy to find God. He was outside the furthermost heavenly sphere, that of the fixed stars. And between us and him were the other celestial realms, which were not a quiet zone of vacuum and planets. The ancient heavens were populated, not just by the planets and stars, but by people making the journey up and down, by divine beings, daimones, archons, angels, and various others, and often by terrifying forces. But however the ancients populated the heavens, the heavens weren't silent and empty like they are today. And today there really are people there. So the question is, what changed? Why were the ancient heavens full of life and personalities, while the modern heavens are basically a void, except for a few rather uncomfortable astronauts floating around conducting experiments? The obvious answer which springs to mind is one about advances in the science of astronomy. Obviously, imagining that you understand something through and through demystifies it, and sending out a couple of rockets and probes and whatnot really does go a long way towards disenchanting the heavens. In fact, I wonder if that's why the conspiracy theory about how they faked the moon landings is such a perennial favorite. By denying that the landings occurred, we can preserve the moon as a place of mystery and imagination. But I don't think the advance of modern astronomy fully explains why we've forgotten about the heavens, even though it's definitely a big part of the explanation. I think the most important reason is far simpler. We've drowned the heavens out with our din and light pollution. Now imagine for a minute that it's the 3rd century BCE. The brightest light that you have ever seen is the sun, or maybe lightning. At night, you're probably a bit scared, since you're much more vulnerable and helpless than during the day, and lots of critters that would like to eat you, or your animals, can see much better than you can in the dark. The only source of artificial light is an oil lamp, and matches don't exist. Lamps must be painstakingly lit from carefully husbanded embers of fires. Forget about turning on the lights when you go for a pee in the middle of the night. It's obvious, then, that the moon will be hugely important to you, simply on a practical basis. As she waxes and wanes, your nights go from pretty useless, nothing to do but sleep, to actually I might even go for a walk tonight, there's a full moon. But the stars, too, will have an enormous impact on you. It will surely be obvious that they are unlike anything on Earth, but it will be obvious, too, that they're alive, or something like alive, since they move all the time. To a modern mind, the analogy that comes to the fore might be a mechanistic one. The stars are like a vast and complex clockwork. But to an ancient, it will have been living things which provided the analogy, or perhaps weather phenomena like the winds and the ocean waves, since these are the things on Earth which seem to move themselves rather than being pushed by something else. Now think about the stars. They don't give you much helpful light, it's true, but surely you spend a lot of time looking at them anyway. In fact, at times of the dark of the moon, the stars may well be the only thing you can look at. And they are, it must be said, very, very beautiful. Now, we don't really know when people started to track the motions of the stars and interpret them. I'd hazard a guess that it was far, far earlier than our records go. Certainly the remains at Gubekli Tepe in Anatolia seem to have some astronomical significance, and they've now been dated fairly securely to about 9,000 BCE, give or take a few hundred years. But we can be more precise about when people started to try to interpret the stars, both in terms of what they might mean to people here on Earth and how they move. The first of these is basically the impulse which led to astrology, and the second to astronomy. But as we've mentioned before, the ancients don't differentiate between these two sciences. Our evidence points to the fact that astronomy was developed because of astrology. That is to say, 
the people who first began to make careful observations of the heavens, eventually developing sophisticated mathematical models for predicting the movements of heavenly bodies, did so because they felt that the heavenly movements were relevant for people on Earth. There was the basic consideration of trying to nail down a calendar which worked, and we also see that concern played out in the earliest astrological astronomical sources. But the more general consideration was that the stars were seen as gods, and that their movement contained omens which could be read to tell what was going to happen on Earth. Now, we're already quite a ways into this episode, and we haven't actually talked much about the origins of astrology. I'm sorry, the stars have that effect on me. First of all, what do we mean by astrology? Well, we mean the science of interpreting the meanings of celestial movements and configurations vis-a-vis -vis events on Earth. This can be to tell us things about the future, to divine the character of someone through interpreting their horoscope, or what have you. So my definition here will include very early Babylonian omen literature that we'll be talking about in a moment, which would not normally be recognized as astrological in the full sense. Usually it would be defined as proto-astrology or the roots of astrology or something like that. The full sense, wherein we have a fully modeled working cosmos with zodiac, planetary spheres, ideas about planetary influences, rising signs, and so on and so forth, is a rather later development, which we shall be discussing later in the podcast. But while we're on the subject, when and where does this recognizably complete astrological science arise? Jumping ahead a bit, we can quote David Pingree, one of our favorite historians of science, who gives us a concise answer. Quote, Astrology grew out of a union of aspects of advanced Babylonian celestial divination with Aristotelian physics and Hellenistic astronomy. This union, illicit, some may think, occurred in Egypt in the 2nd century BC. So, for astrology proper, as Pingree understands it, we need to look to the Hellenistic world. But for the origins of this stuff, the, quote, advanced Babylonian celestial divination, end of quote, we need to look, well, to Babylonia. I have looked to Babylonia and have assembled a timeline of what I take to be the basic outline of the development of early astronomy astrology, building on what we talked about last week. Brace yourselves for some dates. From about 2000 BCE, we have hard evidence of interest in the stars as omens in Mesopotamia. A document with the evocative title, Prayer to the Gods of Night, comes down to us from about 1800 BCE, in which the stars are seen as gods, able to influence events on Earth. So this is not metaphorical. The stars are like gods. The stars are gods. This is an important concept to get our heads around. From about 1200 BCE, we have the beginnings of what we might call mathematical astronomy. A cuneiform text called Mul Apin, the plow star, dates from about 700 BCE, but it's generally thought to contain elements going back to around 1000 or so. Mul Apin contains a lot of interest to the history of astronomy astrology. It lists a number of constellations which are recognizably part of the modern zodiac. We have the bull, the crab, the lion, the balance, the scorpion, the goatfish. And have you ever wondered why Capricorn is a goat with a fishtail? Well, ask a Babylonian, because they, or perhaps the Sumerians before them, came up with this idea. And we also have the great twins, Gemini. There are also a few constellations which are different when compared to modern conceptions. The tails, which is the modern Pisces. You can see the connection there, though. Tails and fish, which have tails. 
and the barley stalk, which is Virgo. This document, Mul Apin, also gives dates for heliacal risings, an account of lunar motions, some account of the wanderings of the planets, and intercalation schemes for reconciling the solar and lunar calendars. Finally, it gives a list of stellar omens, some of which are duplicates of those found in the omen texts known as Enuma Anu Enlil, which we're going to get to now. Sometime in the 7th century, the document Enuma Anu Enlil was written, again preserving much earlier traditions. This was a really long list of standardized stellar omens, about 7,000 of them. Just to get a sample of what these omens sound like, if Nergal, that's Mars, approaches the scorpion, there will be a breach in the palace of the prince. If the worm is massive, there will be mercy and reconciliation in the land. If the true shepherd of Anu's navel is red, there is a black spot in its right side, there will be a revolt. So we have some wonderful colorful names for stellar gods, and we note that the omens are dealing not with the minutiae of individual people's lives, but with big stuff like politics and harvests. Now, the Enuma Anu Enlil is also our earliest record of anyone realizing that certain stellar phenomena are periodic. That is, they repeat. As well as the first recorded attempts to provide mathematical models for predicting such occurrences. So these two documents taken together, Mul Apin and Enuma Anu Enlil, show that by, say, the year 700 BCE, speaking very roughly, the Babylonians had an intricately developed system of omens regarding the stars and planets, and had developed a kind of celestial mapping based on named constellations, some mathematical understanding of the movements of the less regular elements of the sky, the sun, moon, and other planets, and some sophisticated models for making the different types of calendar into workable tools for dating. A few other points here. In 747 BCE, we find the earliest dated eclipse observations at Babylon. By this time, we have lots of documents which show that there was a kind of official astrologer-astronomer bureaucracy spread throughout the Babylonian realm, making observations, deducing which omens were relevant, and feeding that information back to the central palace bureaucracy. It strikes me that this may perhaps have been the world's first intelligence network in the modern sense, only... They were spying not on enemy governments, but on the gods themselves. In 652 BCE, we see the first of the astronomical diary texts. These are basically lists of observations made on a nightly basis. Clearly, the Babylonians were collecting a lot of detailed data at this stage, and it paid off in around 500 BCE when the first mathematical models begin to emerge, which are really useful for what we might call astronomy. As we've seen, they were working on these problems since perhaps 1200 BCE, but the 5th century is when things really come together. The maths get more sophisticated, and presumably the huge body of detailed observations which have been made over the years, the diary texts and so on, of which we possess enough to know that there would have been a hell of a lot more of them at the time, provided the data for the number crunching which followed. At this time, the 5th century, we also see what are recognizably the first horoscopes, texts describing the state of the heavens at and around the time of someone's birth. The omen texts, as we have seen, go way back to the early second millennium, but the personalized approach familiar to us as the nativity horoscope has a much shorter history, 
even allowing for the fact that the earliest example we possess is probably not the earliest that was ever made, we're still looking at a relatively late period. So there we have a quick summary. I find it hard to keep that many dates straight in my head, but I like to feed those who are hungry for data. Overarching themes which we should remember for the history of Western esotericism here are several. Firstly, we note that the idea that the heavens are divine goes back to the Babylonians. They may or may not have been the only ancient people who thought this way, but they are the ones we know about. The prayer to the gods of night, and Enuma Anu Enlil, as we have seen, talk about the stars as gods. When we look at the sky, we're literally looking at divine powers in visible form. This is a crucial idea. Ideas about the heavens vary enormously through time, but a constant among Western esoteric thinkers remains the idea that the heavens are somehow divine, peopled by supernatural intelligences. The Babylonians started something big when they decided that the stars were gods. Secondly, we should note again how the concerns of astrology and astronomy are intertwined right from the very beginning. In fact, the majority scholarly opinion, again, is that the Babylonians developed astronomy in order to get better at astrology. That's astrology in the loose sense given earlier. And this makes sense. Why bother to spend an immense amount of time studying the stars unless by doing so you can get some practical results? In this case, the ability to tell what's going to happen by seeking out the relevant omens. Nowadays, we, we do just study stuff for the sake of finding things out. And the ancients did this too, of course, but they had a lot less free time than we do and a lot more re limited resources. To spend the amount of resources involved in creating a celestial intelligence agency, like the Babylonians, implies that knowing what the stars were doing and what they were going to do was a matter of practical importance. Probably important here is the fact that the omens in the literature are overwhelmingly focused on the fate of the state and the royal house, as we've noticed. It's only in the later period, as we've seen with the rise of the horoscope, that everyday folks might inquire about their fate using the stars. So there you have the very basics about the earliest origins of astrology, or proto-astrology if you prefer. I don't want to go any further historically this episode because we've been packing in a lot of information about our Mesopotamian friends in this and the previous episodes. And for those listeners unfamiliar with the region in this period, we might be offering a bit too much information. For those of you, however, who absolutely cannot wait for a discussion of how this Babylonian science was transmitted to the Greeks and transformed in the process, here is the overly simplified story, told in lightning-fast fashion. In the year 539 BCE, the Achaemenids conquer Babylon. These are our old friends, the Persian Empire. When they do this, they keep a lot of the infrastructure of the previous Mesopotamian civilizations, and that includes what we might call astrological infrastructure. Observations continue under the Persians, for example, the production of diary texts, as does what we might call the development of astrology. In the year 464, we have the first appearance of the zodiac in a diary text. It's starting to come together in recognizable form in the 5th century. Alexander the Great conquers Persia in the campaigns of 334 to 332 BCE, and in the period which follows, known as the Hellenistic period, a huge cultural exchange occurs between Greeks, who have suddenly spread from Egypt to Afghanistan, and the various subject populations over whom they rule. Much learning in science happens, fully-fledged astrology is born, much more on this in future episodes. For this episode, I'd like to touch on one or two more points of specific relevance for Western esotericism. First of all, where are the wise Egyptian sages in all this? I thought the ancient Greeks attributed their astrological traditions to the Egyptians. 
Well, gentle listener, as in the previous episode, where we saw that the Egyptians weren't really all they were cracked up to be in astronomy, it seems they weren't really that concerned with the stars as affecting life on Earth either, unless mainstream scholarship is missing something important. Now, I'm talking about the ancient venerable sages here. As we've mentioned, astrology in its full form actually arises in Egypt. But this is the Hellenized Egypt of the 2nd century BCE, an Egypt full of Babylonian ideas about astronomy and astral omens, as well as the cutting-edge astronomical science of the Greeks. We can't go there now, but let this serve as a sort of teaser for future episodes. But wait! There are two very important contributions which the ancient Egyptians undoubtedly did make, and which we must not neglect to mention. The first is the Egyptian calendar. The Egyptians developed a solar calendar with 12 months of 30 days each, plus 5 extra days, the epigominal days, modified in the late Hellenistic period with a leap year every four years, with an extra day in it. That amounts to a very easy-to-use, accurate solar calendar, and basically everyone in the Mediterranean ends up either adopting it, or at least using it for practical purposes. In fact, it remains in use in Europe until Copernicus's time, with various modifications and accretions that it's acquired through the Roman period. The Babylonians, for whatever reasons, never standardized their calendars to this degree, and, and they were running at least two rather unwieldy calendrical systems simultaneously for different purposes. The Egyptian calendar was the winner, and was adopted all over the place. Secondly, the Egyptians, from very early on, we're talking about the 10th dynasty, around 2100 BCE, were measuring the hours of the night using bakiu, or decans. The decans are constellations which are thought each to occupy 10 degrees of the 360 degree night sky. Hence the name decan from deca, which means 10 in Greek. The decans have a long history in astrology, and we'll be encountering them again. But for now, if you want to think about them as a kind of subdivision of the zodiac into 36 smaller divisions, each with its own character. It's probably a good way of thinking about it. But aside from this short Egyptian interlude, we seem to have been going on about Babylon again. What has Babylon got to do with Western esotericism? Well, scholars pretty much agree that the Babylonians did the hard work of inventing both astronomy and astrology, both of which were for a long time attributed by Hellenophile scholars to the Greeks themselves. So once again, it's good to set the record straight and to cover the earliest known roots of this stuff in the interests of completeness. Before we depart for a different territory next week, near yet so far from the sunny banks of the Tigris and the Euphrates, where we've been straying for several weeks now, I would like to muse on a problem. Muse with me. Let's say, once again, that we are Babylonians, thoroughly steeped in the omen literature. We know that if Ishtar, that's the planet Venus, once a love goddess, always a love goddess, if Ishtar makes a certain retrograde motion in the sky, say, the king's brother will betray the king. Or if such a constellation arises at such a time in such a place, the cattle will suffer and there will be famine in the land, and so on and so forth. But time has passed, and we are actually Babylonians well into the Iron Age. Let's say it's around the year 700. We know not only the ancient and complex omen tradition, but the newer tradition of astronomical observation and calculation. We have, in short, realized something which we moderns take as completely obvious, but which wasn't obvious at all until people did the hard work of centuries of observation to figure it out. The heavens move cyclically, and the whole thing repeats itself if you wait long enough. Now, if we put these two ideas together, the idea that basically every possible configuration 
or movement of the heavens either causes or is a sure indicator of a change on earth, a corresponding occurrence on earth. And the idea that each and every one of these movements or configurations is bound to repeat itself eventually. Don't you end up with a perfectly determinist world? One where literally everything on earth happens because of what's going on in the stars and a world which eternally repeats itself on a vastly long time frame. Obviously, the deterministicness of it increases with the fine-grained details. So the more interpretation we can do through astrology, by example, horoscopes for individual people, the more deterministic things can get to the point where every grain of sand that moves on a beach will have a cause in the stars. Here we see two problems which can very easily arise from an astrological worldview and which are both feature prominently in the history of Western esoteric traditions. Determinism is the problem faced by anyone, not just astrologers, who take seriously the idea that all things are part of a chain of cause and effect. It's very difficult to see how free will or even truly random occurrences can exist in such a world where every effect has its cause and every cause has its effect. Many of the intellectuals who tried to turn astrological thought to their own esoteric purposes throughout history have had to deal with this problem, and they come up with lots of interesting solutions. The idea of eternal recurrence is not so much a problem as a model of history which seems to have had a seductive power down the ages. Last week, you'll recall, we began our discussion with a selection from Plato's Timaeus in which an Egyptian priest makes fun of Greek civilization on account of its being so young. Well, we didn't get to the next bit, where the priest goes on to discuss what makes Egypt different. Egypt, it turns out, has survived numerous cyclical cataclysms, cataclysms which have wiped out other civilizations. This is because of the Egyptian geography, which is somehow inherently stable, allowing Egypt to go on when other civilizations fall. Cyclical cataclysms leading to different world ages. Alert listeners will be reminded of many other thinkers in the Western esoteric lineages. The idea is a potent and recurring one, which we shall encounter again. Now, we shall be returning to astrology in a big way in the course of the podcast. But before we do, in the interest of our vaguely chronological mode of progression, we should talk about another Near Eastern people who will play a central role in our narrative of esoteric history. Join us next week for our first episode on a people who have an epically long and convoluted history. One which, unlike the Babylonians, proved able to adapt again and again to radically different circumstances, surviving conquests, displacements, and even attempted genocide, and able to come out the other side transformed but still recognizable as who they are. I refer, of course, to the Jews. Until then, try to imitate the true meanings of the signs of the Zodiac, and stay esoteric. Stay esoteric.